Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get started, I just want to mention that I'll be making an exciting announcement for History of the 90s fans at the end of this episode. So please stick around until the credits. Okay, on with the show. Each fall, the winners of baseball's American League and National League face off in a best-of-seven series to determine who takes home the Commissioner's Trophy. Time seems to stop and distractions fall away as fans cheer on their favorite team. The World Series has been a reliable tradition since 1904. World Wars, the Depression, 9-11, and not even the COVID pandemic could stop the quest for the ultimate champion of America's national pastime. But there was one time that the Fall Classic was cancelled in what is considered to be Major League Baseball's most catastrophic and embarrassing moment. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the 1994-95 MLB player strike. Before 1994, there had been seven labor disruptions in Major League Baseball, three lockouts by the owners and four player strikes. The longest was in 1981 and lasted 50 days. But the majority lasted less than two weeks and took place during spring training, so there were no missed games. And in each case, the owners caved into player demands and the season was saved. All of that changed, though, in 1994, because owners were prepared to dig in their heels over the thorny issue of a salary cap. Since the mid-70s, owners had been looking for ways to limit how much they paid players. They argued that escalating salaries created an uneven playing field between teams in big and small markets. The smaller teams would never be able to compete because they couldn't afford more expensive players. In fact, they warned that most MLB teams were losing money and that baseball would go bankrupt if there wasn't a major overhaul. Owners, represented by acting commissioner Bud Selig, who also owned the Milwaukee Brewers, said the answer was a salary cap tied to a revenue-sharing plan that would see lucrative teams like the New York Yankees spread the wealth around with poorer clubs like the Pittsburgh Pirates and the San Diego Padres. The Players' Union, the MLBPA, headed up by Donald Fear, agreed with revenue-sharing. They wanted more of it. But under no circumstances would the union accept a salary cap. A salary cap is an agreement that places a limit on the amount of money that a team can spend on players' salaries. And Fear believed a cap would essentially kill the free agent market. Caught in the middle, of course, were the fans, who viewed the dispute in pretty simple terms. Greedy owners versus greedy players. Their beloved game had come down to a fight about how to share billions of dollars. 
There was a collective bargaining agreement from 1990 that was due to expire on December 31st. So on July 28, 1994, the MLBPA announced that if an agreement could not be reached with the owners by August 12th, players would go on strike. It was essentially a game of chicken. The players' union believed that if they didn't reach a deal and they walked out, the owners would never let a strike drag on into the postseason. Among those at the negotiating table representing players was the LA Dodgers ace pitcher Oral Hershiser. With two days left before the strike deadline, Hershiser was so sure that players would ultimately win that he reportedly said to the owners, it doesn't matter what we do, you're going to get rid of Selig, get a new negotiating team, and you're going to cave in. But Hershiser and pretty much everyone else didn't anticipate the unprecedented unity by a group of hardline owners headed up by Chicago White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf. Reinsdorf, who also owns the NBA Chicago Bulls, was one of baseball's most powerful owners in the mid-1990s. He held enough power, in fact, to influence his fellow owners to dig in and refuse to drop the salary cap. The controversial and at times belligerent Reinsdorf appeared hell-bent on breaking the players' union, or at least doing everything in his power to show them who was in charge. You see, there was a lot of bad blood between Reinsdorf and the MLBPA. In the 1980s, baseball players filed several grievances against owners, including Reinsdorf and Bud Selig, accusing them of colluding to keep salaries down. And in 1990, an arbitrator found Reinsdorf and Selig had violated the collective bargaining agreement and awarded $280 million in damages to the players from owners. While negotiations were taking place to try to avert the strike, teams continued to play. And one team in particular was having an incredible season. Led by Larry Walker, the Montreal Expos were widely regarded as the best team in the MLB. And they were on pace to set the record for most wins in a regular season, as well as a bunch of hitting and pitching records. And that was despite the fact that the Expos spent far less on player salaries than some other teams. For example, Montreal's team budget was half of what the Atlanta Braves paid for its roster in the 1994 season. Montreal had spent the past few seasons in rebuild mode. In addition to Walker, the Expos included a lineup stacked with talented players like Moises Alou, Pedro Martinez, Marquise Grissom, along with pitchers Ken Hill, John Wetland, and Jeff Facero. But then once we got to 94, we were all together for, it had been about three years, most of the nucleus was together, and all the young talent was coming together. That's Jeff Facero, who pitched for the Expos from 1991 to 96. He recently spoke to journalist Erica Vela about the 94 team for her podcast, Global News, What Happened To. I mean, we had a great team. We had great clubhouse, no bickering, no fighting. I mean, we were out there and we were... We came to the ballpark every day knowing we were going to win that day. Even if we lost, we came back the next day knowing we were going to win that day. It was an unbelievable team. I mean, there wasn't anything that we were missing. We had everything to make that team and get to the World Series if it would have happened. A day before the strike deadline on August 11th, 1994, there were 10 Major League Baseball games, including the Expos versus the Pirates in Pittsburgh. With 74 wins and 39 losses, Montreal led the National League. But that night, they were shut out, falling 4-0 to the Pirates. 
As the players walked off the field and headed to the dugout, no one guessed it would be the end of the Expo's World Series hopes. At midnight, without an agreement and no new talks planned, a strike was declared, and baseball players were sent home. Montreal, the owners were good enough to fly us back into Montreal. Some teams didn't fly, so you guys are on your own after the game. But Montreal was good enough to fly us, you know, they flew us back. The Cardinals were one of those teams that played hardball with its players. They refused to let them fly home on the team charter plane. Instead, players had to scramble to find their own way back to St. Louis. As players around the league cleaned out their lockers and lights were turned off at baseball diamonds across the U.S. and Canada, the stoppage impacted teams and players in different ways. For the Expos, it put a halt to their blistering hot season. It was the same story in Cleveland. That city's team was also on track to make the playoffs for the first time in over 40 years. For Tony Gwynn of the San Diego Padres, the stoppage ended his fabled quest to bat 400. The Hall of Fame slugger was having the best season of his career and was on his way to joining the Elite 400 Club. In total, 20 players have reached the 400 mark in MLB history, and the last person to reach that milestone was Ted Williams from the Boston Red Sox, who logged an incredible batting average of 406 50 years earlier in 1941. When the strike started, Gwynn was so close. He was batting 394 with no signs of letting up, a feat he would unfortunately never match again. Gwynn and those close to him at the time believed that if he had been given the chance to play it out that September, he could have gotten to 400. Tony Gwynn died in 2014 at the age of 54. He was just one of the many who missed opportunities because of the 1994 strike. Take Matt Williams from the San Francisco Giants. He was on pace to challenge Roger Maris's record of 61 home runs in a season. There's a drive. Look out. That might be out of here. It could be. And it is. His 43rd home run of the year. Matt Williams. In his final game before the league shut down, Williams went deep at Wrigley Field in Chicago and notched his 43rd homer. That put him right on track to challenge Maris's 1961 milestone. But when baseball stopped in 94, so did Williams' chance at breaking what's considered one of the most hallowed records in sports. And Williams wasn't alone. Several other players were having hot seasons. When the play stopped, Ken Griffey Jr. had 40 homers and was on pace for about 58. Jeff Bagwell had 39. Frank Thomas had 38. And Giants teammate Barry Bonds had 37. Bonds would have to wait until 2001 to hit 73 home runs and still holds the single-season home run record and is currently first on the all-time MLB career home runs list with 762. Meantime, the rhetoric between the players' union and the negotiator representing the owners was heating up. On the second day of the strike, Don Fear and Richard Ravage got together in a meeting room at a midtown Manhattan hotel for just two hours. And it quickly became clear that neither side was ready to blink in this dispute. After the meeting, Ravage blustered his way through a very brief encounter with reporters. He said the question is simple. The players went on strike when the average compensation was $1.2 million. All we want to know, he said, is how much more do they want? 
Owners had been pushing this greedy player narrative for many months, painting a picture that baseball was on the verge of bankruptcy, which wasn't really true. But that didn't stop fans of the sport from blaming the players for the labor troubles. They should be playing baseball. I don't know why they're supposed to be going on strike. I wouldn't think they should go on strike because they get enough money as it is. I think the baseball players are at fault for it. Because, you know, they're already overpaid, so I don't know how they figure that they need more money. And fans weren't the only ones impacted. Player strike put thousands of people out of work at ballparks around North America. And the tourist industry took a hit in the cities where major league teams played. The ripple effect of the labor dispute could be felt far and wide. It wasn't just about grown men running around chasing a ball around a field. There was a lot at stake. After a couple of weeks when the calendar turned to September, players were still confident that the owners would blink and cave into their demand to drop the salary cap. They really believed there was no way that owners would risk losing the playoffs and the World Series. But the players' union was dead wrong. On September 14th, Bud Selig made an announcement that stunned players and fans alike. It's the only thing I have to say at the outset today is, um, like a lot of things in life, you um, anticipate something and fear that it's coming, hope that it isn't. And when the day is here, uh, there's an incredible amount of sadness. In an unprecedented decision, 26 of the 28 major league owners signed off on a resolution that canceled the rest of the 1994 season, including two rounds of playoffs and the World Series. Union head Donald Fear was convinced that the owners had planned it all along. There appeared to be no urgency, no desire to go to any extraordinary lengths to find an agreement. Every reason to believe given the calmness with which this announcement was preceded, that this was something the owners had long since, weeks if not months ago, come to accept as necessary. The owners, on the other hand, accused the union of being unwilling to respond in any meaningful way to the team's demands for cost containment. You may be wondering which two owners didn't vote for or sign the resolution to call off the season. Well, that would be Peter Angelos of the Baltimore Orioles and Marge Schott of the Cincinnati Reds. Angelos, whose group had paid $173 million for the Orioles the year before, had been the only owner outspoken against the management position in the negotiations. In a letter to Selig, Angelos said he agreed with the cancellation of the season, but not with placing the blame on the Players Association saying it was at cross-purposes in trying to bring about a constructive end to the strike. As for Marge Schott, the Reds' maverick owner, she was the only one who broke ranks and refused to go along with cancelling the World Series. But not because she supported the players. Instead, she wanted to stage a championship series played with minor leaguers, saying, let's see the real players instead of the million-dollar babies. When the season was officially called off in September 94, the urgency around talks dissipated. With the cancellation, owners had already lost $500 million, and there was no way of getting that back. So they had very little reason to shift their position over the winter. 
As for the players, they lost $230 million in salaries between August 12th and October, which would have been the end of the season. And since they don't earn an income during the offseason anyway, players also had little reason to negotiate. In Washington, however, some lawmakers were determined to find a way to end the strike. And they thought maybe they might be able to do it with legislation. In the fall of 94, the U.S. House of Representatives held hearings on whether to repeal baseball's longstanding exemption from antitrust laws. You see, unlike other pro sports and business, Major League Baseball is exempt from antitrust laws, which essentially protect workers from unfair competition practices by employers. In an infamous case before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1922, often referred to as federal baseball, the court ruled that the Sherman Antitrust Act does not apply to professional baseball. And what that means is owners have the power to impose things like a salary cap, and players are not allowed to sue them for bad faith bargaining. Owners believe that the antitrust exemption is necessary for managing their multi-million dollar investments. But at the time, union head Donald Fear said, it meant that baseball is essentially operated like a cartel. The owners hold all the power to do whatever they want. Former Expos player Jeff Vissero says that's why players felt they needed to protect themselves. It's a different than a regular business because, you know, like in a business, let's say you want to go out and get interview for another job, even if you're working. And then you can go in, I'm going to give you two weeks notice because I got a better offer over here. Well, you can't do that in baseball. So that's why arbitration and free agency was developed. They keep trying to negotiate it back and back and back. At the subcommittee hearings, a number of players testified, including Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher Oral Hershiser, as well as Bernie Williams, the center fielder for the New York Yankees. All we want are the same rules that everyone else has to solve the problems of our game without having to strike. I do not understand how the antitrust laws work, but I do understand that baseball players cannot solve our problems the same way other professional athletes can, and I do not think that is right. In the end, Congress wasn't able to get the antitrust exemption repealed in the fall of 1994. In fact, it remains in place to this day. I should mention that as the MLB halted play, minor league teams were not directly impacted by the work stoppage. This allowed for another incredible baseball story to take center stage. I just feel that at this particular time in my career, I've reached the pinnacle of my career. Uh, I've achieved a lot in that short amount of time, if, uh, if you want to call it short. Uh, but I just feel that I don't have anything else for myself to prove. In the fall of 1993, basketball legend Michael Jordan stunned everyone when he announced his retirement from the sport. He was pretty burnt out by the fame and was emotionally drained by the recent murder of his adored father. You can almost hear it in his voice during that retirement announcement. So the greatest basketball player of all time turned to baseball for a new challenge and a welcome distraction. In 1994, Jordan was signed to a free agent contract by the Chicago White Sox and sent to play in the minors with the Birmingham Barons of the Southern League. 
Jordan played right field and hit 202 with 51 RBI, 30 stolen bases, and 114 strikeouts in 127 games. So not great, but he worked hard and he kept improving. And as you can imagine, his presence on the field boosted attendance throughout the Southern League. At the end of the season, Jordan continued to pursue his baseball dream by playing fall ball for the Scottsdale Scorpions in the Arizona Fall League. His ultimate goal was to be ready for the majors by the spring of 1995. But of course, that would all depend on whether players and owners were able to resolve their issues. Heading into 95, things did not look good. Talks had broken down and the owners voted 25-3 to to unilaterally implement a salary cap. In response, union head Donald Fear declared that all 895 Major League players were free agents. And just when you thought it couldn't get worse, the MLB announced that spring training would go ahead with replacement players, or scabs. Those who were eligible to play included unsigned international and retired players, plus any minor leaguer not on a 40-man roster, in addition to any union members who wanted to cross the picket line. It was a total mess. So right around this time, U.S. President Bill Clinton decided it was time to wade into the labor dispute. After six months of getting nowhere, Clinton ordered the two sides to get back to the bargaining table and set February 6th as a deadline to reach an agreement. Everyone was invited to the White House to try to hash things out. Bargaining committees for the players and the owners, along with mediator William Usury, gathered in the Roosevelt Room under the watchful gaze of Clinton, Vice President Al Gore, and Labor Secretary Robert Reich. After several hours of talks, President Clinton came out to update the media. I had hoped that tonight I would be coming out to tell you that baseball was coming back in 1995. And for a good while this evening, I thought that that might well be the case. Unfortunately, the parties have not reached agreement. The American people are the real losers. The sticking point? Owners had refused to submit to binding arbitration. So the strike continued, and 10 days later, spring training opened with replacement players. Michael Jordan could technically play, but he chose not to. Instead, he returned to basketball, where he would go on to win three more NBA championships. Just like that, Jordan's baseball fever dream was over. But for baseball fans, the nightmare continued, and the strike seemed like it would go on forever the owners appeared to be fully prepared to move on without the players. They announced at the end of March 1995 that a 144-game season with replacement players would begin on April 3rd. That decision didn't sit well with every team. Baltimore owner Peter Angelos refused to field a replacement team. Detroit manager Sparky Anderson took an unpaid leave of absence that spring rather than work with players who crossed the picket line. In Ontario, labor laws meant that the Toronto Blue Jays were barred from using replacement workers at Skydome. The club went along reluctantly with the MLB's replacement player scheme at their spring training facility in Dunedin, where they fielded a team that was dubbed the Who Jays. But Toronto GM Gord Ash refused to let manager Cito Gaston and his coaching staff work with the replacement team. 
Instead, they spent time with prospects at the minor league complex. Meantime, some Blue Jay pitchers gathered at a high school in nearby Oldsmar to run their own training camp. Pat Henkin, Todd Stottlemyre, Randy Knorr, and Mike Timlin got together every day to run, throw, hit, and train as best they could. When insurance issues forced them to find another venue, they moved to what was then known as Canal Park. Henkin recently told Sportsnet, There were two or three little ballparks, some bootleg mounds that were in between, and we made the best of what we had. We threw sides, we threw up and downs, we did exactly what we would have done. We just didn't face live hitters. Throughout, they had no contact with the Blue Jays' front office or coaches, and no one from the club tracked their work. The players were completely on their own. President Clinton made his opinion clear when the owners announced the 95 season would go ahead with replacement players. He said they would stain the game and predicted Little League teams would attract more interest than replacements. But for many of the guys who crossed the picket line, it was a shot to give baseball another try. One last opportunity to get on a major league team. Or maybe just to make a little bit of money. A handful of the replacements did make it to the majors, but they weren't received well by other players, who in some cases held grudges for years. The Players' Union fought back against the owner's decision by filing an unfair labor practices complaint with the National Labor Relations Board. The board then asked a court to issue an injunction to restore the players' expired collective bargaining agreement. Players said they would go back to work if the injunction were granted. The whole thing is incredibly complicated. America's beloved pastime became overshadowed by mediators, injunctions, and resolutions. Fans wanted to be counting runs, not reading court decisions. But after seven and a half months of a stalemate, it took a judge to finally crack this thing open. U.S. District Court Judge Sonia Sotomayor, who is now, of course, a Supreme Court justice, issued the injunction, restoring the old collective agreement that was in place before the labor dispute started. And as promised, players ended their 232-day strike. April 27, 1995, a shortened 144-game season began, and life returned to normal for baseball players and fans. Well, sort of. Games were back on, but fans were not happy about the lengthy strike. For many baseball enthusiasts, the field of dreams had become the field of greed. And they showed their disapproval by turning away from the sport in droves. Attendance in the 1995 season dropped by 20%. And it wouldn't begin to improve again until 1998, thanks to the home run race between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Some of those who did come out to games showed their displeasure in a range of interesting ways. On opening night, Atlanta's star pitcher Tom Glavin was booed. In Pittsburgh, fans threw souvenir pirate flags onto the field and delayed the game for 15 minutes. And in New York, three Mets fans ran onto the field and mockingly threw dollar bills at Bobby Bonilla. As for the players, most were happy to be back. Others took the strike pretty hard. Former Blue Jays pitcher Dave Stewart told USA Today that he never felt the same way about baseball again after the strike. Even today, after all of his years in baseball, Stewart says the passion he had for the game was never the same. All because of the 94 strike. And there were players who never played another major league game, including Bo Jackson, Sid Bream, Lloyd McClendon, and Hall of Famer Goose Gossage, 
who never even got a chance to announce his retirement. In 2014, he told USA Today, The strike got me, man. It got a bunch of us. We faded in and we faded out. As for the Expos, as you might know, the team was never the same. Remember when the strike began in 94? They had a record of 74 wins and 40 losses. And they were on track to go to and possibly win the World Series. Well, in 1995, they finished fifth in their division. And over the next three years, attendance plummeted as most of the team's core players were traded away, including pitcher Jeff Facero. So six people off that nucleus were gone in a matter of two years, which was a shame for us, a shame for the city, actually, too, because to go through the six years for the talent and not have, and then all of a sudden a strike kind of destroys that team. And it kind of might have been what ended up forcing the team to leave. On October 3rd, 2004, the team played its final game as the Montreal Expos losing to the New York Mets 8-1 at Shea Stadium in New York. In 2005, the team moved to Washington, where it was renamed the Nationals. As for Canada's other team, the Toronto Blue Jays, they were among the game's most powerful franchises before the strike, winning the World Series in 92 and 93, and drawing more than 4 million fans to the -the state-of-the-art Skydome every season from 91 to 93, with a similar pace in 94. After the strike, the Jays quickly fell into the bottom half of the league in attendance. They didn't reach the 3 million mark in attendance again until 12 years after the strike in 2016 in the Jose Bautista era. You may be wondering what became of the salary cap and other issues that were still unresolved when players agreed to end the strike in 95. Well, negotiations continued until March 1997, when a new collective bargaining agreement was finally reached. It included a revenue-sharing agreement, but there was not a salary cap for players. The MLB remains the only major league sport in North America without a cap. The NHL, NFL, and NBA all have one. But baseball does have a luxury tax, which was included in that 1997 agreement. It means teams with higher payrolls have to pay a tax to the league. Since the strike, Major League Baseball underwent a lengthy period of labor peace. That is, until recently. On December 2nd, 2021, owners locked out players when their collective bargaining agreement expired. The lockout lasted 99 days until a new deal was finally reached on March 10th of this year, saving the 2022 season. Following two years of pandemic disruptions for the sport, fans will finally get a full season to cheer on their favorite team. And just maybe they'll get to the World Series. Thanks for listening to this look back at the dark days of the 1994-95 baseball strike. And special thanks to Erica Vela for allowing us to use clips from the interview she did with former Expos pitcher Jeff Facero. Please check out Erica's amazing show, which is also on the Curious Cast Podcast Network. It's called What Happened To. If you're a baseball fan, you would especially enjoy her recent episode on what happened to the Expos. Now, if you've stuck around until the end, you're probably wondering what my announcement is. Well, I'm excited to tell you that you can now get bonus 90s content by joining me at patreon.com slash history of the 90s. 
the number one request I get from listeners is I want more. So now's your chance. Subscribers will get extended interviews with guests like Donovan Bailey and Yardley Smith and all the other incredible people I talk to about the 90s. My conversations usually last about an hour, but only a few minutes makes it into each episode. Subscribers will get to hear the whole uncut interview. Plus, you'll have exclusive access to occasional mini-episodes and newsletters that won't be available anywhere else. So if you're like me and you can't get enough of the best decade ever, join me now at patreon.com slash history of the 90s. I hope to see you there. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.